Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems, excuse me, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to your word this morning and we come recognizing our great need, our great need for you, but our great need for spiritual understanding. We ask you to open our eyes, minister to our hearts by your spirit, give us spiritual ears to hear and spiritual hearts to receive. Father, would you clear the cobwebs in our head, clear the confusion, speak to us, oh God. Speak to us by your Spirit that we might be encouraged in the faith, that we might be emboldened to stand firm and strong for you. I know, God, would you help me, your servant? Would you protect me from error? And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God, for you are my rock and my redeemer. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may have heard of a Scottish preacher. He's called a great Scottish preacher. His name was Thomas Guthrie. Thomas Guthrie recalls a time when his country, Scotland, was in the midst of a great drought. So one morning, during the morning service, he prayed for rain. He encouraged the congregation to join him, and they prayed for rain. He went home for the afternoon, and as he was gathering his family to return to church for evening service, His daughter Mary stopped him and said, Papa, don't forget the umbrella. He looked at her and said, what do we need it for, my darling? What do we need it for? You prayed for rain this morning, she said, and don't you expect that God will send it? You prayed for it. They took their umbrella to church that afternoon. They took their umbrella. They took faith. To live for Christ in this age, 
in any age takes faith. Sure, it takes saving faith, faith that's granted to us by God as his spirit changes our hearts from stone to flesh, causing us to be born again. But living for Christ also takes ongoing faith, faith that shields us from the attacks of the evil one, faith that beckons us to trust as we navigate our days, faith that grants us hope in God's continuous provision of all that we need for life and for godliness, and faith like the faith of Thomas Guthrie's little girl, like the faith she had Faith to believe that God will actually hear our prayers and that God will answer according to his will. As we continue in our Revelation series this morning, we come to the account of the first beast. The first beast and his stance against Christ and his kingdom, which is the church. His stand against the church here on this earth. And what we're confronted with in this text It's troubling, it's confusing, it's terrible, and it's frightening. The Apostle John knew this, he he saw it. The Apostle John, his pastoral heart, he knew this. And so even while recording his vision for believers in his day and for believers in our day, he tenderly and pastorally ends his account with a timely reminder Let's read it again. I want you to get a a peek at the ending so we know to where we're going. Let's read again the end of verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. He knows what he's going to say requires endurance and faith. You know, there's a lot to be said about this first beast And it would take weeks for us to say it and even many more weeks to untangle all that has been speculated and written about it. But for our sake this morning and in the little bit of time that we've been given together, I'm going to do my best to simplify what's been revealed here in this text so that we can fulfill the admonition of our brother, the Apostle John, that we may be equipped to stand in faith in this present evil age. To help us on our journey, I've divided the sermon into three points, not surprisingly. So if you're taking notes this morning, I'll go ahead and give those to you up front. First, we're going to look at the identity of the beast. The identity of the beast. Second, we're going to look at the agenda of the beast. The agenda of the beast. And third, and finally, we'll look at the church's perseverance against the beast. The church's perseverance against the beast. Let's begin with point one, the identity of the beast. That very first phrase in verse one, where John says, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, that phrase serves two functions. First, it actually provides the bridge from chapter 12 which, as you may remember, ended with a picture of the dragon. Remember the dragon, Satan? He had purposed to furiously pursue and make war on the church. That was his purpose. And remember, we saw that dragon standing. And where was he standing? 
He was standing on the sand of the sea. And so this phrase, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, it connects to that, that Satan was standing there. And now John sees this beast rising, signifying that that beast, this beast, will be an agent of Satan's warfare, of his warfare against the church. The second function that this phrase would serve is that it would immediately ring a bell in the minds of the original audience. Remember, John is originally writing this to those churches in Asia Minor. Of course, he's writing it for us as well, but in that day, most of his hearers would have immediately had their minds taken somewhere. If you're a student of the Old Testament, maybe your mind went there as well. For a connection is made with the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, chapter 7. There, Daniel sees four great beasts coming out of the sea. He sees four. Later in Daniel 7, an interpretation is given that tells Daniel what the symbolism of these creatures are. And in verses 17 through 27, God actually tells him that each beast represents a kingdom, a kingdom that would rise and fall sometime in the near future. It's also revealed to Daniel that the fourth kingdom, the fourth one to come, would be far greater and far more fierce than the first three. Now, Daniel and his original audience did not know the names of all these kingdoms, but we do now that this prophecy has been fulfilled. You see, the beasts of Daniel 7 represent the rise and the fall of the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and lastly, the Roman Empire. These kingdoms all opposed God and the people of God. But as promised, God would have victory over them and he would judge them. More than that, it was told to Daniel right there in chapter 7, that it would be in the time of the fourth kingdom, we now know as the Roman Empire, that one like a son of man would appear. And he would be brought before God the Father, here called the Ancient of Days. Would you turn over to Daniel chapter 7 with me? Verses 13 and 14. As Daniel sees these beasts as he then gets this vision of God in heaven, beginning in verse 13, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If you've been following along in our Revelation series, we've made the case that that vision he has of Jesus as the Son of Man at the beginning of the book is exactly what Daniel saw here. He sees Jesus as the Son of Man. So at the time of that fourth beast, that fourth empire, then would come the Son of Man. And that's how we know that that was the Roman Empire. And then we step back from there to get the names of those four. So the meaning of Daniel's vision is that though powerful kingdoms would rise and fall, and though these kingdoms will indeed war against God and persecute his people, nevertheless, God sits enthroned in heaven, 
And God will indeed judge these kingdoms in due time. They're going to wage war. They're going to persecute God's people. John's original hearers know that. Many of them have lived through the persecutions of Nero, and now they're enduring the persecutions of Domitian. They know this. But there's coming that day, and for John's readers, they know that day has come. The Son of Man has come, and his kingdom will reign forever and ever. And they know he's coming back. They know they live in that time between his ascension and his coming back. And then will this be fully realized as his kingdom is the everlasting kingdom of glory in heaven. So now here in Revelation 13, we see an immediate connection to Daniel chapter 7, a connection that the original readers would know and you should know as well. And notice that John does not see four separate beasts. If you do a good study of what Daniel sees and what John sees, you're going to see that, that John sees a combination of the four. He sees what appears to be all four of them in one beast. And this tips us off to the fact that this beast does not represent one particular kingdom. It doesn't represent one person, which is popularly believed and written about today. But rather, the beast represents all the political powers and all the people used by Satan to persecute the church throughout the church age, throughout the time between Christ's ascension and his coming again in glory. The beast represents those institutions used by Satan to oppose the church. Remember, that's what he set out to do. And here comes his first helper. Don't be surprised next week when you meet a second helper. And now there's three of them. Take note, three. It'll be important next week. You'll notice in verse two that Satan gives to this beast his power and his throne and his authority. And that he does so, as we see in verse five, for 42 months. Well, here we have this span of time once again. Back in chapter 11, verse 3, and chapter 12, verse 6, it's called 1,260 days. It's called 42 months in chapter 11, verse 2, and chapter 13, verse 5, and in chapter 12, verse verse 14, it's called time and times and half a time. Five times we see this phrase. The case I've made since we first saw these phrases in chapter 11 Phrases that all represent the same length of time, and you can talk to me afterwards and I'll tell you how they came to that. The case I've made is that this time represents what we call the church age, the time between Christ's ascension and Christ's coming again in glory. So when John's original audience heard that this beast would exercise authority for 42 months, it has to mean something to them, right? Not just us. When they hear that, they wouldn't have opined about some future time in history near the end of days where one ruler or nation would wreak havoc for 42 months. No, they would have seen this beast as what they were facing. They would have seen it as the current political power that's persecuting them. And they'd be comforted to know that the persecution is defined. And they'd be comforted to know that one day Christ is coming back. And he's going to overthrow them. That's what they would have been looking forward to. That's what we should be looking forward to. The same would be true for the church in all ages. 
The book of Revelation is for everyone, all Christians, for all time, including our own. No matter who was the oppressive power, we should know that their power will ultimately be usurped by the power of Christ. So then we see the identity of the beast. The beast represents all the empires or political powers throughout human history that have stood against God and his people. So let's move on to our second point. What's his agenda? What's the agenda of the beast? What does he come to do? Pastor and commentator Richard Phillips, he does a wonderful job demonstrating that this beast parodies. He's a a parody of the death, resurrection, and person of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 19, which we'll get to, Jesus is seen coming, and what is he wearing? Many crowns. So here in verse 1, guess what the beast has? Many crowns. Also in Revelation 19, Jesus has a worthy name written on his thigh. But here, again in verse 1, the beast has blasphemous names written on him. In Revelation 5, chapter 5, Jesus receives those from every tribe and people and language and nation. So look here in verse 7. The beast has authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. In Revelation 7, Jesus is worshipped together with the Father. So here in verse 4, the beast is worshipped together with the dragon, with Satan. And finally, you'll notice in verse 3, look what John says. He says, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. Parallels in the original language in the Greek point us back to Revelations chapter 1 and 2 and make clear the connection with Jesus' own death and resurrection. For the same word is used to say both Jesus and the beast were slain or mortally wounded. And the same word is used to say that Jesus came to life and the beast was healed. Or if you look down in chapter 13, verse 14, the beast yet lived. You see, Satan's beast mimics the resurrection so that, as it says in verse 3, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast The beast is a counterfeit Christ. He's a counterfeit second person of the Trinity. You might already have thoughts in your mind about the third beast then. But with all of this in mind, the agenda of the beast becomes crystal clear. By distracting the world from the true Christ and even suppressing the truth about the true Christ, The beast seeks to acquire worship for himself and for Satan. Verses 5 and 6 highlight this. They highlight his haughty and blasphemous words, words accompanied by actions that deceives the masses into worshiping a false god. You don't have to be a grand student of history or even look too far into history or even into the current state of the world to see this very thing at play. It can be attested to from despotic rulers who actually demand that people worship them. 
all the way to governments that set themselves up as the guardians of religious life and thought. Can you think of a few of those that have existed through time? Of course you can. Dr. Vern Poitras wisely notes that even in countries like ours, even in democratic countries, Satan wants people to, and he says, look to the state as if it were a messiah. He goes on and says, for when the government is set forth as the remedy for all ills, whether those ills be economic, social, medical, moral, even spiritual, then the idolatry of the state usurps the place reserved for God alone. He concludes by saying this, whenever we sing the secular doxology, praise the state from whom all blessings flow, we will soon be serving the beast. So we see then that the beast may be a pagan who attacks biblical teaching, or he might be an atheist who crafts cunning arguments against God's existence, or the beast may actually be in a gentle, omnibenevolent government that dispenses its own version of an opiate for the masses. Either way, the agenda's the same. It always has been and it always will be the same. Distract from Christ suppress Christ and redirect worship away from Christ and to Satan. There's only one other option. If you're not worshiping God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're worshiping Satan. But that's not the only agenda, is it? It's not the only agenda. For what happens when the faithful refuse to render worship to the beast and to Satan? What happens? Look at verse Seven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. I want you to notice that it is against Christians as saints. Saints is another word for holy ones, those who've been made holy by God, for Christians. It's against the Christians that the beast makes war. I want to stop here for just a second because this is a good reminder. It's a reminder that it's not for our sins and our many faults that the world hates us. We give the world enough reasons as Christians to not like us. But that's not why they persecute us. They persecute us because we're holy ones. The world persecutes us because of who we are in Christ, because of God's saving work in our lives. The world hates us because of Christ. The world hates us because it hates Christ. Don't take my word for it. Turn to John 15. Turn to John 15, verses 18 through 19. What does Jesus say in his farewell discourse? As he's reminding the disciples, as he's reminding us of what we will face and even how he'll provide. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Those are the words of Jesus. The Roman emperor's demand for worship, and that, that happened. The Roman emperors demanded that people worship them. It connected John and his readers 
Back to Daniel. Remember what I said last week? It's hard to understand Revelation if you don't understand the Old Testament. That's why I'm trying to help you with this. If you know what went on in the book of Daniel, there was a wicked ruler. And what did he require of the people? To worship an idol. He set up a golden image of himself and they were to worship it. The whole nation was to bow down before it. But what happened to Rack, Shack, and Benny, as the Veggie Tales called them? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what happened to them? They refused. No, we will not worship an idol. We will have no other gods before our God. And they were thrown into a fiery furnace, disposed of, thrown away. Praise be to God. that there was one there with them in the fire and that they were delivered. But you know that pattern has continued all throughout history. There's been many more Rack Shack and Bennies since then. And there's going to continue to be more until Jesus comes. And when I read verse 7, I get a little bit full of despair because the, the, the beast will generally succeed conquer them. The beast will win. Seemingly, at least, right? Christians have and will die for their faith. Christians have been and will be forced into exile. Christians have been and will be marginalized, suppressed, mocked, even hated. Yes, even in places like here, our own United States, Satan and his beast are furiously waging war on the church. They're relentless. That's what we're to take from this. So relentless is Satan at attacking the seed of the woman about Jesus and his people, his body, the church, that he even enlists this beast and the next beast to make sure that he continues to go hard and go strong after the church. So don't be surprised when the battle comes to your own shores, to your own village limits, even to your own front door. Don't be surprised. How about that for a pick-me-up? That's the agenda of the beast. Seek the worship of Satan and persecute God's people who stand against him. So what hope is there? How can we possibly endure such an onslaught? Who can match the power of the beast? What hope is there for us in this present evil age Well, that's why there's a third and final point. The church's perseverance against the beast. In the concluding verses of chapter 13, John points us to three important applications. Three important applications. And I see these serving as like a a supply line. If you know anything about war, one of the most important aspects of war is maintaining a supply line to the troops. They need supplies. And oftentimes your enemy will do what they can to cut off those supplies. 
John's reminding us that God's supply won't stop. He's going to continue to supply for his people. First, John points us to our hope. And it's not just empty hope. It's hope in a sovereign God who has ultimate dominion and authority over this world, over Satan and his beasts, and even over our very lives. Take note of a very important phrase. We've seen it throughout the book of Revelation. The beast has limited authority. Verse 7 says that he was allowed to make war on the saints. And he was given authority over the nations. Satan's power, his agent, the beast's power, it's delegated power. It has defined limits for a defined period of time. Even so, I don't want you to miss the further expression of God's sovereignty. Right there in verse 8. At first read, you're like, what? Everyone will worship the beast. Everyone will worship the beast. Except, except those whose name has been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. This verse points us to real hope. Hope we have in God's sovereign salvation that those whom he's chosen for eternal life, those whom he's given to his son for redemption, are going to be secure until the final day. If you know Jesus, if you've been saved by grace and through faith, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life forever. And the promise of this verse is that you will be preserved from worshiping the beast. Second, with such a great hope in mind, John points us to our humble calling in verse 10. I want you to look at verse 10 there with me again. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. And John makes it very clear here. God makes it clear through John that we can expect captivity. We can expect wrongful arrest. And so when this happens, we should embrace it as our calling and as our witness for Christ. Even if we're to lose our lives for Christ's sake, this is God's calling. That's what he's making clear. It's God's calling for our gospel testimony. This does not mean that we seek this out. It doesn't mean that we don't take prudent steps to avoid persecution. But it does mean that when persecution comes, when unavoidable, washing over you like a tsunami, persecution comes, we need to embrace it with faith and resolve to do God's will, to take up our cross. That's our humble calling. And that's meant to be an encouragement. Because we belong to Christ. And we fulfill our calling that Christ gives us. Third, John makes a stirring appeal to perseverance and faith despite all the affliction that we're going to face. I began here and we'll come to an end here. He says, here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. You know, Satan and his beasts together with their followers, they think us defeated when we're knocked down. 
and persecution. Yet through perseverance and faith, Christians have the victory. We are victorious through Christ. John emphasizes this same principle in his gospel and revelation, also in his letters. In 1 John 5, 4 through 5, he says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. And he says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It's victorious, overcoming faith. You see, that is our perseverance against the beast. It's hope in a sovereign God, so sovereign that he even controls our calling, and so we embrace our calling, whatever it might be. We take up our cross, and we follow Jesus And we have faith, enduring, persevering faith, faith that assures us that no matter what happens in this life, we will always be safe in the arms of our Savior, eternally secure in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you have that kind of hope? Do you have that kind of hope? Are you aware of what Jesus might call you to do? Again, we don't run after that. Are we readying ourselves for what is sure to come, if not in our day, in our place? It's coming. Many are even suffering under it today. Are we aware of that? And do we have faith? Do you have life-giving, persevering faith? Many of us stumble at that point, right? Maybe our faith hasn't been tested as by fire. So I can only offer you this, and it's a lot. Jesus. Only faith in Jesus. And his work on your behalf and his promise to never leave you nor forsake you, but to raise you up on the last day and bring you safely into glory. That's the faith you have to have. I don't know how I'll respond. In fact, I haven't been very happy with how I have responded as trials come upon me. But oh, to be in the school of Jesus and learn from him. Oh, to know that he's never left me. So I want you to listen. If you have such faith and hope, praise God, rejoice today. If you're here this morning, and as Jeremy so wonderfully reminded us, if you're full of fear, cast that fear at the feet of Jesus. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And if you don't have faith at all, friend, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Confess your sins unto him. Put your faith and trust in him. Today is the day of salvation. If you want to talk to me or somebody else after the service, don't leave this building without talking to someone. Let's pray. God, as we prepare now to come to the table, we come mindful that in many ways, 
we still need understanding of your word. We need to understand the times. It's right for us to mourn and grieve and even despair over the things that we see, not only across the globe, but even across the street, across the room. And as much as we all, oh God, try to put ourselves into various camps and raise our flags and find our tribes, oh, that we would just return to this place, to this table, that we'd return here and understand that our full and total and absolute allegiance belongs unto you, Lord Jesus. You are our King of kings. You are the one who rules and reigns over all creation and even, yes, over our hearts. And so that we would bow our knee unto you and that we would seek your face and say, Jesus, help us, help us. I believe, help my unbelief. Thank you for your supply, for the riches that you supply, oh God. May we taste them even now as we're reminded of the great love you have for us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.